So last week, uh, Louise preached a cracker of the sermon on the passage in Mark chapter 4, uh, when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee by speaking to it. <clears throat> and when I was younger, I, I really appreciated um, uh, Louise's sermon so much because it reminded me when I was younger and I was trying to grapple with the concept of Jesus being God as, as well as God the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and how does all that work. Um, I used to wonder why Jesus just didn't say, yes, I'm God, and you've got to fit that in with the Father and, you know, and just make it clear for us. And yet, as Louise, and, and yeah, he did say that, but, but probably not in that clarity that I was hoping for. And yet, as Louise pointed out in that passage, uh, Jesus spoke to creation and it obeyed him. He spoke to the wind and the waves and it, it calmed down as he, as, he, as he commanded it to. Just as in the beginning God spoke and the universe came into being. No wonder the, the disciples went from being terrified of losing their own lives to being terrified of the clear implications of creation obeying Jesus. Jesus did more in that moment uh, in order to um, say who he was than, than anything he could actually say with words. What an experience to treasure for the rest of their lives. And just uh, as they had an experience that they would treasure for the rest of their lives in a storm, as Louise pointed out, so we too experience our most treasured moments with God in the midst of our storms as well. Not that we want to stay in storms all, all of our lives, but there, I guess uh, each of us have been through different kinds of storms and we have met God in a way that we, we wouldn't have been able to in the middle of those storms. So today we're moving on to the story of the demonised man in Mark chapter 5. And there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot in this passage that um, I don't understand and, and I guess a lot of uh, people don't understand either. But there's some, there's some key points I think uh, that we can draw out. And uh, I've, I've got three and a, maybe one or two others. The first is that the devil presents himself to a society in a way that he can do most damage to God. That's the first point. Second point, and probably the most sobering, is that Jesus will um, give us what we most ultimately want. And thirdly, the good soil described in the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, is often found where we wouldn't expect it. So those are our three points today. So, the first point, how the devil presents himself to various societies. <clears throat> First of all, let's set the scene for the miracle here. Remember that the disciples have just witnessed Jesus speaking to the storm and it obeying him. And then they're probably rowing the rest of the way across the lake and probably wishing that maybe Jesus hadn't calmed the storm so much, but there's a bit of wind. But anyway, they're rowing the rest of the way and they're probably stunned about what they've just witnessed. And I've often wondered why Mark and, and therefore Peter often says, Straight away or immediately. Have you noticed that through, the, through our studies in Mark? There's a lot of those, like, straight away there's this, and then immediately there was that. And I was like, surely it can't have been that immediate, you know. But I was thinking, most of us don't see anything like that all of our lives. Like, we, we, I haven't even seen a, a demon-possessed man. I haven't, I've only seen one possible healing, and I wasn't there at the time. 
Um, I, haven't, I haven't seen anything like really massive like that. I haven't seen anyone, I haven't seen the Lord speak to a storm and it going like that. But these disciples, they're just one after the other. Probably multiple times a week they're seeing these incredible events happening. And you think about it, if that was you, you'd be like, man, Jesus spoke to creation. And you'd be processing, right? Well, what is the implications of what I've, what I've just seen? And then before you'd had a chance to process that, boom, there's another one. It's like, oh, okay. And then you start trying to figure that out, and then boom, there's another one. And so these things just keep on coming at you. Huge things that you don't have a chance to completely process. And no wonder they're still processing them decades after Jesus died because there's just so much. We're processing this millennium after Jesus has died, and we're still like, man, there's so much in here. So I think that's why he uses immediately and straight away in the context of, I haven't had a chance to process this, the last 17 things that have just happened, and here's the next one, and here's the next one. So we pick up the story as they arrive in the region of the Gerasenes, and this region is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is now known as the Golden Heights. And what's interesting is that this area was populated by people who were, who were Greek, and so, uh, in other words, this is a Gentile region that Jesus is heading towards. So if you're wondering why these people had such a large herd of pigs when the Jews uh, consider pigs unclean, well, the reason is they're not Jews, they're Gentiles. So we read that as Jesus gets out of the boat, he's met by a man with an impure spirit who came from the tombs to meet him. And the scripture says this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Wow, what, what a tragic existence. What, what a picture of suffering and, and misery. How on earth did he come to be in this situation? Well, notice that the scripture says no one can bind him anymore. Which means that at some previous point in time, they could bind him with chains. So there's been a progression. And probably before that, they could bind him with ropes. But he broke those, and then they bound him with chains, and he broke those. So if we go back further enough along the progression, I think it's fair to conclude that a long time ago, he was just a normal guy. Which is a bit alarming when you think about it. And Tim Keller points out that if this is the case, it's a classic Faustian bargain. Now, I've, I never heard of this guy Faust before, but a Faustian bargain refers to the legend of a man called Dr. Faustus who agrees to surrender his soul to an evil spirit in exchange for unattainable knowledge and magical powers that give him access to the world's pleasures. So you make a trade, and you're trading your soul, which is not a great idea, selling your soul to the devil. And if this is indeed what happened, we can see this man attained incredible strength. And it, 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 was, it was growing, growing in him, this incredible strength. And perhaps he used it for his own benefit. But gradually the demons took over and now he's been cut off from all that it means to be human. He's essentially the living dead. Isolated in the tombs in torment and hating himself so much, he's cutting himself with stones. And at the end of the story, Jesus leaves, having just 
delivered this man. So I think it's, it's fair to say that Jesus came across the lake just for this guy. Isn't that awesome? This was Jesus coming to rescue one of his lost lambs. Now it would be easy to jump to an incorrect conclusion here that the Bible says that anyone who self-harms or suffers from extreme mental illness is demon-possessed. But the scripture itself doesn't allow us to have such a simplistic view. In Matthew 4.24 we read, They brought to him all having ailments, pressed with manifold sicknesses and pains, and demoniacs and lunatics and paralytics, and he healed them. So there's, there's a distinction between the demon-possessed or the demonized and lunatics. And a lunatic is not a very nice word to call someone these days. And that's from Young's literal translation. In the modern translation, they, they call it epileptics. But the, in the Greek, the word means literally moonstruck. Luna, <laughs> right? Moonstruck. And we kind of occasionally joke about someone being, uh, it's a full moon and things like that. <clears throat> but the, the, the outcome of this scripture is that we can't simplistically ascribe all mental illness to demon possession because the Bible itself makes a distinction. They knew about stuff like that. They knew the difference between someone who was demon possessed and someone who had mental illness. And then on top of that, paralytics and, and all the other ailments. So they had a nuanced view. It was, we can't just say, oh, <clears throat> okay, so... Um, that guy suffering from mental illness, that's, that's the uh, example of demon possession. But what about demon possession itself? <clears throat> Why don't we see it in our culture? I've, I've never seen demon possession. I hope I, hope I never do, actually, to be fair. How is it that the Bible says that demon possession is a reality when we don't see it in our society? And I think some modern folks uh, living in the relative comfort of the West might say, oh well, you know, the Bible is presenting us with a real primitive understanding of the world and modern science knows much better now. To which I would respond, why did my father see Messiah woman howling like, like wolves at the moon during uh, exorcisms? And how was it that they were brought back to their right mind afterwards? The Lord delivered these, these women from demon possession. And um, John, when he went to Kenya, he had some horrible stories of sacrifices of, of children and all sorts of heinous things going on. They're terrible. I, didn't, I was like, man, I didn't think that stuff still happens these days. But the outcome is that the average African, I think, would accept the reality of demon possession, but the average Kiwi wouldn't. So what's going on? Are we just more advanced and, and you know, we, we know what's up and they're just primitive and they don't really know what's up? I think what's going on is that the devil presents himself to a society in a way that will do most damage to God. Think about it this way. If one of your atheist friends who doesn't believe either in God or the devil was suddenly confronted with demon possession like this case, what would they be forced to do? They would be forced to recognise the reality of the spiritual world. right? And if they were forced to, to recognise that, yes, there was a whole other dimension out there of the spiritual world, then maybe I need to seek God because I can see evil and I really hope there's someone good there as well. But the devil's quite happy to leave people to live as atheists. And he wouldn't want to disturb that equilibrium, right? 
in, the, in, the, in Africa, though, he presents himself as a very powerful being. And Dad's got a, a number of stories um, which, is, um, which created uh, a lot of... A lot of the Africans were fearful for Dad. <clears throat> and Dad was like, no, no, the Lord is fine. The Lord is God. And so he was able to remain in a place of peace. <clears throat> and there's many such stories uh, like that. So the devil presents himself to a society in a way in which he can do the most damage to God. So does that mean the devil is not active in New Zealand? <laughs> Absolutely not. I think most people accept that there are uh, rapidly increasing rates of depression and anxiety, loss of hope, and most worryingly, I think, anger. I think people seem to get angry really easily these days over something very small. It's interesting in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So what does that say? It means if you, if you remain angry and you, um, you ruminate on it and you don't deal with it, <clears throat> you're giving the devil a foothold in your life. Okay, so he's going to get in there and he's going to start amplifying that anger. Make it get bigger and bigger. And eventually something really bad is going to happen. Do not give the devil a foothold. So unconfessed and unaddressed sin gives the devil an opportunity to make you its slave. Whether it's pornography or lust or anger or gossip or unforgiveness or any number of other things that we, uh, we're all vulnerable to, the same thing happens. Gradually, one step at a time, slowly, slowly, we get drawn into a snare set by the devil. So the devil is just as active as he is in New Zealand as he is in Africa, but I think in a more subtle and more fading into the background way. So that's our first point to be aware of. The second point, Jesus will give us what we most want. So let's um, look at the story. The man runs to Jesus. Now I thought, but when he gets to Jesus, it's the demons that cry out. It's like, what's going on there? If this guy's so demon-possessed, how is it that he runs to Jesus? <laughs> the demons will be going the other way. But I think, remember, it's a gradual thing, right? And I think there's enough of the man remaining in himself. I mean, why would he be cutting himself? He'd be, that, that's, and, and why would he be in misery? Like, there's enough of the man remaining to run to Jesus, even though he can't speak. But that, isn't that wonderful? That's all he had to do. He just had to run to Jesus, and Jesus did the rest. <clears throat> Jesus already knew what he most needed. In verse 8, we read, For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you, you impure spirit. So in other words, Jesus had already issued his command. And it was after that that the demon shouted, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. But I never, I didn't see this uh, for for some time. In God's name, don't torture me. Now, in any exorcism, in any time or culture, a higher power is always called upon. That's why we, well, for example, in prayer, we always say in Jesus' name, don't we? Because 
We're recognising that we're, we're powerless in ourselves to make what we're asking for happen. So we're calling on a higher power, Jesus, the ultimate power, to receive our request, and if it's in his will for us, to make it a reality. <laughs> but this demon, he's trying almost like a reverse exorcism. He's calling on God to stop what Jesus is doing. You see that? In God's name, don't torture me. It's like, <laughs> it's almost black comedy here. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't call on any higher power. He doesn't say, in God's name, like the, the demons just did. He just said, come out of this man, you, you uh, impure spirit. Right? What does this mean? He is the higher power. He doesn't have to go any higher because there's no one higher. So again, just as Jesus spoke to creation and creation obeying him, that's, that's behaving as God. This is behaving as God as well. <clears throat> he just speaks and it happens. He doesn't, he doesn't defer to a higher authority. And then in the next few verses, Jesus does something astounding. In verse 12 and 13, we read, The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank, and the Greek word uh, is also used for the word cliff, so it's a, it's a big drop, into the lake and were drowned. Now the demons had already begged Jesus not to send them out in the, of the area in verse 10. So they obviously think, if we can just get into the pigs, we can stay in the area. Um, but it didn't really work out like that, did it? Perhaps they had never bothered to test whether they could go into an animal and whether it liked it or not. But pigs, they didn't like it. Now you might not know this, but pigs are very good swimmers. In fact, one is on record to have swum 11 kilometres. So the fact that they rushed down the hill and drowned themselves indicates just how freaked out they were. They were out of their minds, literally. Now a whole lot of questions come up about the pigs, right? What about the pigs? Did Jesus not care about the pigs? I don't think we can conclude that from the scripture. But I think Jesus prizes us more than animals. In Matthew 6.26, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He cares about animals, but are you not much more valuable than they? Are you not much more valuable than they? But the astounding thing in all of this is that Jesus gave the demons what they wanted. Even if he knew it wasn't going to end well for them. This is quite a sobering thought, isn't it? C.S. Lewis once said, if There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. If we want something more than Jesus, he's going to give it to us, ultimately. What's something that you greatly desire? Does it compete with your love of Jesus? Are you so certain that it won't lead you into a herd of pigs? I'd love to have loads of money in the bank, like millions. But how do I know that if I did get that, it wouldn't lead me away from Jesus? And I wouldn't lose everything like the man in the story. Are we willing to, to trust Jesus enough to say, Lord, here's what I'd like, but you know best, so you decide.
So that's our second point. Jesus will ultimately give us what we most desire. And the third point, the good soil. Verses 14 to 17 say, Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So this man, he's sitting there in his right mind. What a trophy of grace. He who had been possessed was now delivered. He who had lived among the dead was brought back to the living. He who had been naked was now clothed. He who had been out of his mind was now clothed in his right mind. He who had been cast out of relationship was now drawn back into relationship. He who hated himself to the extent that he mutilated himself now knew how much he was loved. Jesus came all the way across the lake just for this guy. And the beautiful picture of God's love for us. And what was the response of the people of the community? They were afraid. The Greek word means literally to fear a great fear. I spent some time on this. Why, why, why was that their response? Surely they could have been stoked that this guy who had been tormented was now free. But I think I kind of we look at it through the lens of our modern world. And, and we, we automatically value the individual human being. And we forget that that idea that the individual, any individual human has dignity only came with Jesus. Up until that point, that wasn't there. So I think the people were horrified. You sacrificed 2,000 of our pigs for that guy? Please go away in case you do anything more like that again. Maybe we're moving in that direction. Maybe if it cost us $2 million for someone to be rescued, maybe we'd say, what? That's a bit much, isn't it? Would we say something similar? It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? <clears throat> Perhaps that's why they were so afraid. And they begged him to leave. And once again, Jesus grants their request to their great loss. Now you think about it, they could have said, um, Lord, um, 2,000 pigs is quite a bit, and we might go hungry later on, that, those were our livelihood. Could, would you be able to like, do something about that? They could have asked, like, if Jesus got the power to do that, couldn't he recompense them? No, they just said, please leave, to their great loss. And then we read this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now this has struck me as being quite unusual in, in our last, up until this point in, in Mark. Because for the first time, Jesus instructs someone to go and tell others. Whereas up until this point in time, he's been saying, no, don't tell anyone. Why the change? 
I think the answer lies in the nature of those who are going to be spoken to. The idea that there was only one God and that he was concerned with individual human beings would have been shocking to the Greek and Romans and they, they would have laughed at it. They certainly wouldn't have formed a huge crowd searching for the Messiah like the, Jesus, uh, the Jews would and did. But Jesus wanted them to hear the good news and see evidence of his power firsthand. So I think that's why he told this guy, you go back to where you came from and you start preaching. So what does all this mean? A few weeks ago, Michael took us through the parable of the sower, which he said could be better named the parable of the soils. And we understood that there was four different types of soil in which the, the seed of the word of God sprouted, but it didn't necessarily hang around. There was only one example, the good soil, in which it grew stronger and produced a harvest. But we didn't have any examples of what the good soil looked like. Now we've got an example of what the good soil looks like, don't we? Here's this demon-possessed guy. He's been delivered. He's been restored. He wants to go with Jesus. Jesus says, no, you can't do that. You go and do this. So he did. He's a true disciple. He's good soil, isn't he? <laughs> Who would have thought that this guy was an example of the good soil? May we never discount anyone from the kingdom of God based on what we can see with our eyes and understand with our minds. So as we've journeyed through Mark, we've kept three questions in mind. Who is Jesus? What did he do? And what is this call to his disciples? So in the story of the demonized man, we see that Jesus is God once again. He's doing God-like things. He didn't call on any high power when delivering the man. And on top of that, it didn't seem to matter how many demons were present. Whether one or one million, same thing. He just says, out you go, and they go. They had to obey the spoken command given to them by our Lord and God. So Jesus, who is Jesus? He's God, once again. What did he do? You stand back and look at what he did. He went out of his way to go to a region filled with people whom the Jews regarded as not only unclean and oppressors, but as enemies to be destroyed. And he healed one of them. It's a ridiculous thing to do if you're a Jew, right? It's no coincidence, I think, that the demons told Jesus their name was Legion, a term used by the Roman army. They're the occupiers. So, but Jesus didn't take a sword to the region of the Gerasenes. He took healing and deliverance. Jesus told us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us, and here he is embodying that command. So this is important, really important for our society now. We, it seems to me we're separating into tribes. And when you separate into tribes, you start hating the other tribes. And you start, and, and that's, I think that's why there's so much anger. But remember, that's not Jesus' way. Jesus is calling us to love, even those who hate us. So remember this, if you're ever tempted to begin to hate, if you, you know, to look at a group of people and go, Ugh, I wish God would wipe them out or something. That's not, that's not God's way. Finally, what is this call to us, his disciples? Firstly, you can't put a price on an individual human soul. It's priceless. You can see this in the story, right? 
If he called a bi church into existence to reach just one person, that's worth it. Secondly, while the natural human response to, consider, to those we consider evil is extermination, Jesus called us as his disciples to love. Thirdly, Jesus will give us what we truly want because he respects our free will. So his call to us is to value individual uh, human beings, to treasure them, to try and see them as God sees them. To respond to others who hate us in love and to ask God to give us hearts that love him above all else. Wouldn't it be tragic if, if we suddenly realised on the Day of Judgment that actually there's a part of me that wants something more than Jesus. That'd be, that'd be terrible. Let's ask the Lord to give us hearts that truly love him above all else. Charles Spurgeon says, This narrative teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ will go away if he's asked to. He will not remain where his room is preferred to his company. That's the respect that Jesus shows each of us. Even demons. Crikey. Finally, I think, there's one aspect of the story that is very moving. By the end of the Gospel of Mark, at Easter time, Jesus exchanged places with this man. You see that? Jesus delivered the man from evil, but was made evil. He was made sin on the cross. Jesus healed this man of his wounds, yet he was wounded himself. Jesus was the one crying out his anguish because of his agony, his rejection and his isolation on the cross. Jesus was the one who ended up in the tombs. Why did he do this? Because of his love for each one of us. So let's pray. Lord God, we want to sit and meditate on the story and all that it teaches us about what you treasure, what you value the sacrifice that you are willing to endure for those you love. And those you love are us. Lord, you, you place incredible value on each one of us. You, you've done everything you can to draw us into relationship with you. And yet you will not override our will. An incredible Lord, you are just amazing God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you experienced everything and more that this man did and went through. So, Father, soften our hearts. Give us the grace to respond to your love. Give us hearts that love you, desire you above all else. In your precious name we pray. Amen.